As we come into the presence of God, just like when we first meet someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. We have two passages this morning. The first one is from Isaiah 58, 7 through 10. I'm sorry, 6 through 10. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. Second passage is from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 45. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from, from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God and Father, I pray that you might be near to us as we meditate on your word this morning. You would be calling us to love and to obey it, that you would be with us sinners as we sit challenged by its teachings. Be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. 
pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you weren't with us last week, um, normally here at Kish we just preach through books of the Bible, and we've been preaching through the book of Exodus since the beginning of September, and we'll pick that back up in January, but we're taking a break for a few weeks here around Advent to spend a little bit of time reflecting on a specific theme. And basically that theme is this, that at Christmas we are mindful of kind of Jesus's two comings, that he came back in Bethlehem as a God, as a human being. He's coming again one day in the future. But biblically, there's also a clear sense that Christ is meant to come into the world through us in the present, that we're called to be his body, to bear his image, to represent him in the world. And so we talked about that big idea last week, And then this week and the next two weeks, we're going to talk about a few specific ways Scripture applies that calling. Next week, we're going to talk about our call to share the gospel with people. And the week after that, we're going to talk about our call to presence and compassion. This week, we're going to be talking about the Bible's call for us to help the poor and care for those in need. And I'm not going to waste much more time introducing this topic, because we have a ton of grounds to cover, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the fact that the Bible commands that, we're going to talk about some reasons we can struggle with that command, and then we can talk about some practical ways to do that. First, let's talk, let's start with Scripture and what it commands. Over and over in Scripture, we are called to help the poor and oppressed and care for the needy and those who are disadvantaged. Our reading from Isaiah is pretty representative of the way the Old Testament handles that. Before what we read this morning, um, God is talking with Israel, and Israel comes to God and says, Lord, look at all of our great religious deeds and these big festivals and these fasts that we keep to you. Why aren't you impressed? Why aren't you blessing us and causing us to really flourish because of these great things we do? And God's response at the beginning of what we read this morning is basically... Yeah, I don't care about any of that. If you read in verse 6, he says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? So God says, as long as you are ignoring this calling, then the stuff that you are doing is not impressive to me. It's not meaningful. As long as you are failing to free the oppressed and feed the hungry and shelter the sojourner and clothe the naked, you've missed the point. A couple of things to notice about those verses from Isaiah that are characteristic of how the Bible talks about poverty. One is that it touches on a whole range of issues. There are issues that we might think of as issues of social justice, like slavery and oppression. And there are struggles of circumstances, like people being without food, or those who are wandering without shelter, or those who struggle to buy clothing. It includes all of that when it talks about poverty. It does also have a special focus on on us helping those closest to us. That is a theme in scripture that our first priority is to think about our own flesh and blood. Um, There's a special judgment on Israel when fellow Israelites are poor because it's like if you should be helping anybody, you should be starting there. But that isn't exclusive either. When Israel is tasked to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, 
that is given without exception, and the language of poor wanderer almost certainly includes foreigners. The Bible talks a lot about sojourners and those who aren't Israelites in their midst. So the Bible calls us to care, especially for those closest to us, in the sense that first we're responsible for that, but then also to be mindful of all people in the way that we show care. But the point of that for Isaiah is that that concern for the poor is really central to what it means to truly have biblical religion. A little later in our reading, he says, If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. That is a strong calling. To do away with injustice, that's the pointing finger and malicious talk, that is what he's talking about. To spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the poor. If you do these things, God says, then your light as God's people will flourish. And it is important for us to recognize when we hear that call from Isaiah, that that is not an isolated call that happens once or twice in the Bible. Um, the Bible talks a lot about helping the poor. I, I thought about just doing that thing where I read like 10 different verses to make the point, but instead, so that I can spare us, this, in your bulletin, there's an insert, and on one side of it is a list of some of the biblical passages about God's concern for the poor. There's like 40 of them, and there's not more because I spent a half hour on it and was like, I need to just go do other things, right? I was still finding passages that I could put on the sheet. It is a major biblical theme, and if it's not something you've studied, you can spend time looking at that. Um, but that said, let me just try to paint a picture of some of that in the Old Testament still. Um, in the Old Testament, care for the poor was really just programmed into life as God's people. Now remember, I'm going to describe how things worked in ancient Israel, and while we are still God's people, it is worth saying things look different for us, because in ancient Israel it's both a church and a state combined, and so, uh, you know, not all of this stuff will translate in exactly that way to our life in the modern world. But certainly, this is meant to convey the way that God, the kind of concern God has, and the way he programs this into the life of his people. So if you were in ancient Israel, um, here are some of what would happen. First of all, um, Israelites were required to give money to help support the poor. Um, we talk about the tithe, if you've ever heard that in the church, which means the tenth. But in the Old Testament, there's actually two separate tithes. There's one tenth that is taken, and that's what supports the temple and the priesthood and the clan of Levi. And that's what we tend to think about in our day when we talk about tithing, if you've been in a church that does that. But then there was a second tithe that was taken from all Israelites, and that tithe was split, and some of it went to support um, public festivals and celebrations, but then a third of that was just set aside to help the poor. Uh, you read about that in Deuteronomy 14. And so 3.3%, right, of every Israelite's income every year. It was taken every third year, and it was 10%. But that was set aside to help the poor. And then secondly, there were these civil regulations that Israel followed to help the poor. So for instance, and keep in mind, basically everyone in the ancient world was a farmer, right? Everyone farmed and then you did other stuff on the side. But if, when you farmed, um, when you 
went to get the harvest, you were not allowed to reap to the edges of the field. You had to leave around the edges unharvested crops. And you were only allowed to go through the field once. You couldn't go back and get anything that you missed. And the reason for that was that then poor people were allowed to come and work your field and harvest your crops, and they could use that to help support their family. Um, and more than that, every seven years, Israelites were commanded to keep a Sabbath year for a given field, and they weren't allowed to work it at all. And that was true of their vineyards, and that was true of their fruit trees, and they weren't allowed to harvest anything in those years. And whatever grew untended in those years also belonged to the poor. And that's in Exodus 23. And then on top of that, there was a thing every 50 years called the Year of Jubilee. And on that year, it was like that Sabbath year, except way more extreme. Um, if someone had become poor and had to sell their property in um, the Year of Jubilee, all the property reverted back to the people and families that it originally belonged to. So if you bought land from your neighbor, right, come the Year of Jubilee, you or your kids or whatever would have to give it back. Um, all debts were canceled. There were slaves in ancient Israel, and it worked a little bit differently than slavery in our day, right? Or in, you know, in America's past, it was more like kind of being an indentured servant. But regardless, in the year of Jubilee, everyone was set free, right? Um, it was just this giant reset button. You can read about that in Leviticus 25. And like I said, that, I am not saying that those things need to translate onto our world one for one, right? We, Israel is the church and the state is a different kind of entity, but I run through that for you to just get a sense of, like, when God structures his people in the Old Testament, clearly he does so with a lot of concern for those who would be economically disadvantaged or poor. And then I think it should go without saying, but maybe we have to say it, that in the New Testament, that theme continues. Um, the New Testament regularly calls us to care for the poor, too. We read from Jesus' discourse in Matthew 25, where he pictures God's final judgment. And Jesus is the one, he's sitting on the throne judging the world, and he separates the world into sheep and goats, into those that um, are saved and those that will be condemned. But what's the evidence that he gives? He says, to the sheep, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And when they say to him, when did we do this for you, Jesus? He famously responds, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now we need to be clear about something when we hear those words from Matthew 25. It is not the case that Jesus is saying there that helping the poor somehow earns our salvation. Right? All of scripture belongs together, and scripture is clear that we are saved by grace through trusting in Jesus Christ and, you know, and being justified freely by him. So it's not saying that. But what it is saying is it's saying, what's the evidence that that has happened to you? Right? What, what's the evidence that you have been saved and that you belong to Jesus? And one of the main evidences scripture gives is that we care for those in need. Not just here in Matthew 25, in 1 John, which is really this whole book about that question. How do I know that I'm a Christian? What, you know, what's the evidence of Christianity? John says this. He says, this is how we know that lo what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? 
which is to say, if we've experienced God's love, that should be made evident by the way that we care for other people. Going back to Jesus' words in Matthew 25, there's another striking thing, too. We talked last week, and it's kind of the theme of our series that we're supposed to be the body of Christ. That Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, while his body is in heaven, is in us, and so we are supposed to be the, the agents through which he works in the world. Um, And that's true, but what's striking about Matthew 25 is Jesus takes that biblical image and he flips it, and instead of saying sort of like, I am in you, he instead says, I am in those you need to serve. He identifies with their bodies in a sense. He says, what you have done to them, so you have done to me. And that should be a compelling picture for us when we think about this calling, that we are supposed to look at people and see Christ in them. And so serve them. So all of that said, here's the point of that. We as Christians are called by scripture to help the poor and the needy and downtrodden. That is a major theme of the Bible. And in just a minute, we're going to apply that. Well, in a few minutes, we're going to apply that and talk about how we live that out in our lives. But first, I know that meets different people at different places. And so I want to talk about a few ways that we can struggle with that calling, or that we can have questions about that. Um, I want to talk about three of them. The first two are intellectual struggles that we can have that make us uncomfortable, and the third one is a practical life kind of struggle. I'll just acknowledge up front that especially the second of these might be kind of challenging for us. Um, And so I just want to say first that that's kind of the point, um, that we need to be challenged by scripture in these ways. But realize that in all of these reflections about helping the poor, I just want to say now, like, man, I really feel like this is one of those, like, both barrels are facing me kind of sermons just as much as anyone else, right? This is a calling that Elizabeth and I, well, we try to live into, don't do as much as we feel like we should. And so, as we say maybe some challenging things, understand that I am very much including myself with you all. But that said, the first struggle some of us have with that calling to help the poor is theological. Some of us struggle with it because whether we know it or not, we've been trapped in this kind of theological um, false choice. For like a hundred years in American Christianity, there's kind of been this debate. Um, And the simplest way I know is to summarize it like this, although most people don't put it this simply because when you do it sounds kind of absurd. But the debate is, as Christians, should we care about people's physical needs or about sharing Jesus with them? Should we care about people's physical needs or sharing Jesus with them? And you might, if you're not around the church, be wondering why in the world would you debate that? We'll we'll talk about it in a minute, but here's what happened. Here's why some people feel that tension. Historically, um, in the 20th century, within the church, this divide kind of happened between two groups. Um, I'm going to call them the mainline and evangelical Christianity. Mainline and evangelical Christianity. Some people refer to those as liberal and conservative, but that's not helpful because theologically that it's not the same categories as it is necessarily in other areas. But here's what happened, right? So mainline Christianity was characterized by a series of abandoning the historic beliefs of the church. It stopped thinking that you needed to believe that the Bible was God's perfect and authoritative word. It stopped believing that things like Jesus' death for sin or his physical resurrection were necessary for us to hold as Christians. Um, It abandoned those kinds of beliefs. 
And what increasingly happened in mainline churches is that they tended to emphasize the kind of social justice teachings of Scripture instead. I mean, honestly, just because I don't know that you have a lot less left when you abandon all that other stuff. And then evangelicalism was the other side of that debate. And it insisted that we needed to stand for and defend those historical beliefs. That, um, th- and that is a sense in which we are evangelical. That I am, that Kish Church is part of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's said that to, if you deny Jesus' death for sins, if you deny his bodily re- resurrection, if you deny the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, that you're really abandoning Christianity. Um, and I think you are. <laughs> but... What happened then was that evangelicals were in this fight with the mainline, and because the mainline started really emphasizing those social justice things, evangelicals started feeling suspicious of those parts of scripture. It was like maybe you were trying to sneak that that bad theology in the back door, right? And so it became more and more hostile to those themes. Um, And so that's where we get that debate, right? Do we care for people's physical needs or do we care, you know, do we share Jesus with them? Do we give them bread or give them Jesus? But the huge problem, which hopefully when I stated it at the beginning you kind of felt, but maybe you didn't, the huge problem with that is this. Like if I could make one of my first rules for like thinking well, right, would be this. When someone says or, you should always ask, do I actually have to choose, right? Whenever it says, is it this or this, One of the first questions you should ask is, can it be both? Because I just think in this case it really is, right? I am deeply evangelical in my theology. But that is why I think that we should care for the poor because, you know, I believe the Bible and the Bible talks a bunch about caring for poor people. Um, There's no reason that we can't just say, here is bread and here is Jesus to people, right? That we can't both care for their physical needs and share Jesus with them. In fact, I think the Bible would really challenge us if we try to make that separation. Um, James, for example, in his epistle is talking about this question of faith and works and how these things relate. And he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If you say to them, go in peace, right, you know, blessings, um, be warm and well fed, but you don't do anything about their physical needs, what good is that? Which is to say, James is saying, yes, on the one hand, you know, bless these people and give people Jesus and care about them, but at the same time, also care for them physically. So we just do both of those things, right? That's that first struggle we have. And then, and if I'm honest, this is the one I feel trepidatious about walking into it all, there is a political set of struggles that we have in both directions. And you guys know that I generally work very hard not to talk about politics in sermons, and I'm still going to be work very hard in this to not take sides. But, um, but I think we have to talk about that, because I know for a lot of us it's in the background when we think about this call to help the poor. So first of all, here is the crucial principle, always, which is that Christians can be politically conservative, and Christians can be politically liberal, all right? You can be a Christian, and you can hold, you know, you can lean in either of those directions politically. And I know some of you might have a problem with that, and if so, we can talk, but like, that is just true, all right? And in terms of helping the poor, here's how that works out. Some people think that it is, the effective way to help the poor is through private charities and community initiatives, They think that government takes money from those things and that it's really inefficient and breeds dependency. And that set of people is the people we would call conservatives, right? 
another set of people think that government is actually one of the most effective ways to help the poor and that you should have a strong social safety net and that while private charities are great, that people just aren't generous enough to meet the needs in our world and those people are liberals. And then some people are in between, right, or have this mixture of views and that's fine too. In that sense, Christians can hold any of those views. I am not saying that we shouldn't debate them or talk about them or, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that one side isn't wrong, but what I am saying is that um, it is um, important for us to respect that as a difference of opinion and important for us to recognize that Christianity does not decide that question, right? That said, you can also lean in either of those directions in unchristian ways. You can go wrong in both of those directions as well. And so, let me just try to name a few of those in each direction. First, for people who lean in the liberal direction, there are a couple of issues that can arise. You can fail to recognize that there is a real element of personal responsibility when you talk about issues of poverty. In scripture, both systemic injustice and personal sin are part of the mix of why poverty exists. And you, you know, if you lose one of those, then that can cause problems. If you're liberal, you can also confuse just fixing people's physical problems with addressing their deeper spiritual needs, and that's a real failing as well. And maybe most importantly, you can use the government as an excuse not to personally engage with callings to help the poor, right? You can just be like, well, I hold these political views and I pay my taxes, so I don't need to do anything, right? Like the government's taking care of that. And we are clearly a scripture called to personally and as churches engage with helping the poor and needy, right? So you can go wrong in that direction. And we could say more about that, but I also am aware of where we are in the country and of the danger of, um, you know, of focusing too much on the other people's sins. And while I know some of us hold those convictions, more of us probably lean in the other direction. And so we also need to talk about that. Um, so for conservatives, there are also a couple of issues that can arise. One is that you can fail to recognize that there's elements of systemic injustice in poverty, right? That things like racism or a rigged system can keep people down. Like we said, personal sin and systemic injustice are both a part of how the Bible talks about poverty. And so we need to hold both of those things together. And you also need to recognize that... Um, that while private property rights are wonderful politically, right, that within the kingdom of God, everything belongs to God. And, um, and what we earn and the things that we own are still his, and we're called to be generous with them as Christians. Um, but the thing that maybe concerns me the most, if that is your leaning, um, and because I know we're evangelicals and, you know, we're <laughs> red, you know, state kind of country, this is the one that really worries me, um, is that there are some within conservatism who I hear a lot talking about the poor as if they are enemies rather than human beings needing to help. And that, I mean, I just, just to say it bluntly, right, there are people on the right who demonize the poor and paint these pictures of welfare queens and um, inner city thugs and drug addicts and talk about the poor as unworthy of compassion or as these communists trying to stick their hands in your pockets. And that kind of rhetoric is wicked and opposed to scripture. I mean, just putting together that list of verses and reading verse after verse where God expresses his sympathy and care for the poor, if you engage in that kind of talk, you have a big problem with the Bible. But, 
Again, I am not saying in that that you need to become more liberal, right? That's the, that's the thing I want to safeguard against. Nor am I saying, if you're more liberal, that you need to become more conservative. What I'm saying is that all of us need to recognize that whatever our political views are, Scripture values and calls us to care for the poor, and there are ways we can go wrong. And usually, we, what we have to beware of is not the errors of the other side, right? But the ways that our side can kind of pull us in problematic directions. All right, I know that was a tough one, and if any of you want to talk about that, I'm happy to. But then there's one more struggle that I think we can have. And this one is not really about our thinking. This one is just about our lives and the reality of our lives. Maybe the biggest reason we struggle to help the poor is just that we live in the West very comfortable, very separate lives from poverty. In the first place, we are very comfortable, viewed from the world stage. I mean, we are ludicrously wealthy in terms of the globe. Just, people talk about the 1%, right? You know, like, you know, the, the one percenters are really rich. Globally speaking, if you took all of the people on earth, how much do you think you need to make per year to be part of the 1%? The answer is $32,400 a year. If you make more than that, then 99% of the people on planet earth are poorer than you are, right? And I know most of us are in a position where we make that. Um, the problem is that we don't feel like we are, and that's because of that separation part, right? Um, because we live around people that are sort of a similar wealth level to us, and so we just compare ourselves to our neighbors. It's like, like you, sometimes you hear, you know, these things like get circulated on the internet where some guy that's got like a billion dollars talks about how he's middle class, right? And we all laugh at him. Um, but the reason that happens, right, is because he lives with a bunch of other billionaires. And so in his eyes, yeah, you know, and that compared to my neighbors, I, you know, I don't have that much money. We do the exact same thing, though, right? Because we live in a place where everyone kind of makes sort of similar amounts of money. We look around us and think, oh, I'm just average. We don't appreciate how blessed we are. Um, and we're also geographically separated, that's worth saying. Even within the United States, poverty is often in pockets, right? If you go drive through parts of Rockford, you can see a sort of poverty that, you know, is largely absent from our experience. Globally, that's even more the case, right? Often it's whole countries that are that way. And I don't have an easy answer for that challenge, right? We are very blessed, but very separate from poverty. And all I can really say to that third challenge is we just need to name that try to stay mindful of that, to remind ourselves when we're just thinking like, oh man, you know, I'm, I, don't, I can't afford all the, the Starbucks lattes this month that I want, <laughs> you know, that, that we are, even as we struggle sometimes with financial challenges, deeply blessed in ways that much of the world is not. All right, so with all of that said, let's move to some practical suggestions, some ways that we can actually think about living into that call to care for the poor. And in many ways, this is really the fourth struggle, right? We can say those other things, but maybe the last thing is we can be left thinking, all right, but what should I do? So I just thought I'd like to offer three specific things to think about doing. None of these are commands you have to follow, but three things to think about doing. And then a few places you could give to to help. First, a specific thing this holiday season. Um, between the gifts and decoration and food and gifts... We spend a lot of money um, on Christmas. The U.S. spends $680 billion a year on Christmas, was the st stat I found for last year. 
which, for comparison, if you took the gross domestic product of the bottom third of all countries in the world, it's also about $680 billion, <laughs> which means that we could buy the whole economies of a third of the countries in the world for what we spend on Christmas. Um, but um, just reflecting on that, one concrete, practical, simple thing to do is this holiday season, just think about taking some of the money you would spend on that stuff and give it to a charity instead. Charities are often looking, you know, and giving opportunities this holiday season. But, I mean, if your grandkids got $20 less presents, I'm not saying don't give them anything. I understand that grandkids would be mad if, like, they just got, like, a cow for an African kid for Christmas. Although maybe that would be good for them. But, you know, I have little kids and we have too many toys. But, I mean, if you gave them $20 less and said, hey, we're giving this to this charity, I mean, they, they would survive Christmas and it would be a good way for you to help out. If we just said, you know, maybe we don't need all these new decorations this year, or maybe we can just, you know, eat a simple meal and set aside some of the money we would to give to a charity. Those are good ways, especially because they're asking us to give something up so that we can be mindful of something else to give. So that's something to think about. A second practical financial one that's bigger picture um, is to think about that sort of thing year-round, too. One of the things that Elizabeth and I have been talking about, although we haven't really... Um, we're not doing this yet. I'm not bragging on us doing this, just to be clear. We're, we're not here yet in our lives. It's that idea that, like, okay, like, you set aside money for the church, but then Israelites had this tithe for the poor, so what if we just took that? What if you just three, you know, three and a third percent of your income every year, you just tried to set aside to give to different organizations or charities to help them out? Um, and third, we should also be mindful of the fact that it's not just money that we're called to give either, Right? And in two weeks, we're going to talk more about that when we talk about presence and just being with people. But it's worth thinking about giving some time to volunteering. Maybe take your family or take your small group and volunteer at one of the places we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. So those are some ideas. To be clear, none of those are, thing, are rules, right? I am not saying that you have to do this, either in the sense that if you're not doing it, you're like a bad Christian, right? Don't hear that. Also not in the sense that if you're doing this, that's all, and you're good, right? Generosity is something all of us are called to grow in. And so if you're not doing anything, take the first few small steps. And if you're doing this or more, still be thinking about whether there's ways the Lord wants you to grow and be more generous. All right? And then I know some of us might wonder, well, who should we support? Where should we give money? Um, and so let me just suggest a few charities, three local and two um, international, and these are on the other side of that bulletin insert, that are all solid places that make good use of money and share our values as a church that we would like. Um, very locally, there's the Bread of Life Food Pantry. It's based out of Valley Covenant Church in Stillman Valley. Um, I know some of you have volunteered there, and we, you know, we meet with that church twice a year, and um, yeah, good people. And so, especially if you want a place to volunteer, it's a great place to think about starting. Secondly, the Rockford Rescue Mission, which many of you are familiar with. Um, we have a long relationship with them, and they do a lot for the community of Rockford, especially in terms of helping the homeless. They care for them and provide meals and shelter and job training and all kinds of just really neat opportunities there. And Rock House Kids is another one that, that um, is in Rockford. It's focused on giving kids in the poorer parts of Rockford a place to come after school. So they let them come and play and they teach them lessons and feed them a meal and just do stuff to give them a safe place to be kids and, and have fun. Um, and there are other good ones too. Uh, it's worth saying 
Um, our church has a relationship with those and with several other nonprofits. And we actually, as Kish, believe that this is valuable for us as a church, too. So I don't, if you're not aware of it, we actually set aside 12.5%. I'm not sure why we have the half, like, it anyway. But we set aside 12.5% of our budget. I'm looking at a couple of the elders like, this is something we've never talked about. But, um, <laughs> but um, it's good, right? Just we could round it up. Or d- anyway. Um, and we give it to charities. And some of, some of that we give to missionaries and other overseas things, but all three of these organizations and several others we support as a church every year. And then a couple international ones. Um, Compassion International does great work um, with helping kids in the poorest parts of the world. Um, Elizabeth and I, for years, have sponsored a kid with Compassion, and it's really neat for our children, actually, as they've kind of grown up with her, and we get letters and can, you know, can kind of talk about some of those issues with them through that. Samaritan's Purse which does work on global disaster relief and famines and other catastrophes is another great Christian international nonprofit. And there's lots of others. One last practical note about that, if you're thinking about giving to something like that, is to search online and make sure they're making good use of your money. And the best way to do that, um, don't just Google their name, but Charity Navigator is who I usually use, just charitynavigator.com. There's a couple sites that do it, and they will rank charities both in terms of their transparency and, you know, and like leadership um, accountability, and then also in terms of how much of the money that you give to them they actually use for the purposes that they're asking for. And um, you can look there. There's others like Charity Watch that are also good to check out those kinds of places. That said... Coming back to the big picture, that is our calling. One of our callings as Christians, to be Jesus' hands to the poor by caring for and helping them. Um, What I want to leave you with, though, is an encouraging note. Because I think when we talk about this, we can all feel challenged. And it's good for us to feel challenged, because we want to grow. But, um, But doing this, as much as it's challenging, is also a really powerful way for us to show forth Jesus to the world. That's what Isaiah is saying back in that reading we had from Isaiah 58. Um, Israel's question is really like, God, you say like we're supposed to be a light to the nations and shining beacon on a hill, and why isn't this stuff happening? And Isaiah's answer is that the way that Israel becomes such a light, in part, is caring for the poor. And, um, And here's what he says will happen as Israel does those things, from what we read. He says, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Which is to say, your light and God's glory will shine forth as you live into this. That you will show forth his image in the world because of it. Um, That is our calling as Christians, remember, to show forth Christ in our lives. And it's just worth saying that, at least for the early church, this was very much the case. Um... The early church took this calling to help the poor really seriously. As Christianity spread in the first few centuries of its existence, it started shelters and and hospitals and places for people to live, all kinds of ways to help people, um, to meet people's needs. And that was part of why Christianity spread the way it did. Um, One story about that, in the fourth century, um, Christianity was legal by this point, just recently, but there was this emperor named Julian who was a pagan and who was trying to get rid of Christianity. And he recognized that one of the main reasons people were so drawn to it was just because of the way it helped the poor. Here's how he said it. He said, Christianity 
has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Christian who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render. Right? Now, Julian hates this, right? <laughs> he hates Christianity, but he's saying, like, they care for the poor, um, not just theirs, but ours too, and that's part of the reason that they've spread the way they have. Um, in fact, I just have to tell you the rest of that story. So what Julian does, um, he puts a bunch of programs in place to try to undercut the influence of Christianity, and one of them is that he actually starts a, a welfare system, thinking that, you know, I'll replace the church, and people won't get that help from the church anymore. They'll come to the empire for it. I know some of you are excited about that politically, but stop, <laughs> because here's what happens, right? Julian starts that, um, and what happens is that it fails miserably, and the reason is because the early church was so generous and so good at helping the poor that they could not compete either financially or in terms of services with the church. That basically no one came to these like hospitals and shelters that the Roman Empire started because the church was doing such a good job caring for those people so generously which is a challenge to us, but that's also an encouragement because we can do that kind of stuff. We can, as we live out that calling and show that generosity to people, shine forth the light of Jesus in that same way, in a way that draws people to him. As we live our lives seeking to show that kind of generosity, it is Jesus that is made present and shown forth in this world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us all in that calling. You would, yeah, forgive us for the ways that we've sinned in it um, and encourage our hearts that we might live into it more and more. Pray that you might most of all cement us in the generosity you show us in Jesus Christ who loved us and died for us and rose again that we might have new life in him. Amen.